This is Docs in the Box podcast. A podcast about medicine, muscles, and more through the eyes of two physiatrists. I'm Dr. Amy West. And I'm Dr. Matthew Cowling. Hey guys, this is the Docs in the Box podcast. We hope you enjoy our interview with Dr. Kelly Starrett, physical therapist, educator, awesome human being, founder of Mobility Wad, The Ready State. He's full of knowledge, uh, just recently underwent surgery himself, and he's sharing with us his recovery process and lessons he's learned throughout his rehab. Here's part one, part two to come soon. Enjoy. What's going on, big brains? Can you hear me? <laughs> hey, man. Hey, Kelly. I had this, uh, I had this great uh, clinical instructor who was infamous for burying her students on the stairs of this like seven floor hospital, you know? And then, so she loved to take the stairs, how she got her steps in. And one day I was like, oh, these stairs. And she's like, oh, like, oh, we can take the elevator. And I was like, oh no, you don't understand. It's destroying my fitness. And she was like, what? And I was like, man, I'm becoming less powerful and less fit every time I take these stupor, slow aerobic stairs. And she was like, in 20 years, I've never heard someone say that. And I was like, well, it's true. So, I mean, you're responsible for my shitty fran time, lady. So, uh, anyway, wow. it's, it's so wow. good. That's how, I, that's how I still think. Wow. I'm like, is this, is this life activity, like walking with my grandmother, destroying my family? Sure. What do you guys want to talk about? Uh, so, yeah, I was thinking, like, talking about your knee surgery and mm. how you've sort of, how rehab, what rehab has looked like for you and how that's different than probably what you were originally told to do or advised to do. Those fucking doctors don't know. Jack, <laughs> sweet fuck all. Yeah. I, uh, I Agreed. really have, yeah. I have swung around, you know, I, it is, I, I just feel like we have to rethink about, you know, who's, who's responsible, who owns what, like to put this on a physician, like, like my surgeon did the most amazing surgery capable now what like it's not a doctor problem anymore lifestyle like the no one who's the who are the the shareholders here it's really interesting when we start asking about who the stakeholders are and who owns what i think that's really the the fundamental piece because i think we've been misusing our physicians forever and i think physical therapists frankly have been skating by on unskilled care for decades now so, you know, I think the physical therapists are freaking the fuck out because we've been moving things on the other side of this paywall that are low level and unskilled. And uh, I think we just need to sort of reimagine the whole spoke of the person in the middle. And then, you know, the, the, every physician, physical therapist, trainer, coach, nutritionist is just equidistant from the person. And they take different turns being lead in that person's life. So I think we, that's really important because, you know, the guidelines given by, by a physician are really reasonable guidelines, you know, but the application of those are sort of open to interpretation based on what you bring to the table prior to your surgery, you know, which is a different game. It's like one of the most challenging things looking at the particular procedure you had as somebody who I've had a ton of knee issues myself and I'm 32 and I've had four surgeries already. Uh, a knee replacement, something I was looking at, you know, thinking, oh man, there's no way that I would be able to have this and do anything just because of the model that they put out there. It's, you know, you have the replacement and that's the last resort. We do so many procedures and stuff to try to, you know, fend off getting that eventually done. And then um, when you do it, it's kind of like, oh, now you're almost saying, oh, the patient needs to be more sedentary after this procedure, which is actually ridiculous, right? 
And now you're out there kind of rewriting that script, which is amazing. No pressure. I just like, you know, people are like, someone's like, how's it going? Well, I had two choices. I could either be a total failure as a professional or I could kill this knee experience, you know, and uh, it really does. It's, it's an interesting conversation about do we let pain drive our decision-making or do we let function drive our decision-making and you know, what, what our expectations are, because, you know, this is my first serious orthopedic surgery. And I, by the way, don't say, uh, arthroplasty and I don't say replacement. I say resurfacing, which sounds like, Hey, I got a new roof. Like it's so sexy, right? Like I have these shiny surfaces now that absorb force. And, um, you know, I think people wait along. I, I think typically people are so sedentary and so detrained that by the time they see their physician, <clears throat> the, the post-surgical care is very low level because that's all the person can tolerate. And they spent those two months eating into their retirement reserve, like physical reserve retirement. So we need to think differently about what it looks like. And I have to be honest, I mean, I can go to town on, I'm not even six months out. And what I can do on this knee is bananas and so much better than, you know, the, my working around my problem. You know, I literally, like I am, I mean, my, I've met every post-surgical goal I had, um, you know, I just power cleaned hundred kilos last week and I was like, well, that's the last thing I wanted to scratch off my list, you know, of, of just function as a 47 year old male. And, um, you know, I went in to a bunch of, and we, whether we're talking about this, we'll talk about it again, but you know, I was just at a, uh, Danny Matei's physical therapy conference. Uh, he has a PT biz. He's trying to get these physical therapists to be alternative to, to, to insurance. So we have 70 independent PT providers there. And I was like, how many of you have seen someone with terminal knee extension on a patient with a, you know, total knee? And they're like, not a single one. I was like, what do you think about this? I was like, I have minus five. And they were like, what the fuck? And I was like, I know. And I have 155, 160 degrees of flexion. And you can't tell because the incision is so small, but you can't actually tell which leg had undergone the procedure based on my quad mass. And I was like, we accept a lot of downgraded function, but I don't think we need to necessarily. So super stoked to get into the weeds because I think we're the first generation where we went really hard in the paint. And now the people we're seeing in our forties and fifties are starting to have fewer choices, right? Apparently the stem cell magic fairy cells that you guys, uh, you know, go down to Mexico or Guatemala and they put them in. Apparently that doesn't work every single time. Isn't that weird? And uh, so, you know, what are our choices to stay as functional and rad as we can? So I think it's really, it's, you know, it was a, I had sort of a bad choice, like keep taking things off the table or have this what they were described or traditionally thought of as a dead end knee surgery, you know? Yeah, I think we're seeing sort of both ends of that in our in in our practices. People in their forties who are either so out of shape mm. and so obese that they're getting pretty bad arthritis at such a young age that they're kind of up against a, a wall. You know, that, that there aren't many options left. Um, or people who are super active and driving their knees into the ground who need early replacements because of all the surgeries they've had and whatnot. So, um, you know, trying to find the best choices for those people is challenging. I saw a great piece of research <clears throat> by, uh, I don't remember, uh, Jim Laval. I don't remember who it was, <clears throat> but basically if you have had an ACL injury, the chances of you having a, a total knee arthroplasty are like 50% higher. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, you know, and, and what it's really interesting is, well, 
we start asking that question, you know, what's going on in the environment that we've degraded the, you know, the surfaces of these joints, this chronic inflammation, the, <clears throat> the poor loading of the fascia, the poor mechanics, you know, the physical therapists have ostensibly written off mechanics. Oh, it doesn't matter. And I'm like, well, it matters. Do you want to lift fast and go hard? And, you know, there are positions that are more ground force, you know, tolerant, but, you know, asking this question about, you know, how do we continue to load people early enough, long enough so that their tissues are robust? They're, we're going to be a hundred years old. I just saw another piece of research that <clears throat> this is on 60 minutes that 50% of the fifth graders alive today will be 104 years old. So, wow. you know, we have a um, Dr. Nick Denubli. I don't know if you've run into him. Um, he has done a lot of ACL replacements. He was like presidential physical fitness board head of, you know, I mean, just, he's a, a, a mucky muck doctor orthopedist, but <clears throat> when he did all his ACL graphs, he would start the graph by hand coring the bone by hand and then picked the drill up to get into that cortical bone. And now he's able to turn the entire thing by hand through his teenagers and young adults, which says something about what is going on in the robustness of that bony tissue, which is bananas. I mean, I was like, Hey, you ever heard of Wolf's law? That's what we're talking about here. Like the actual bones. So why are your bones so soft? What is going on when you know, like they couldn't even, they went through three saws trying to cut my femur and they were like, well, you know, we've never done that before. And I was like, have you seen my friends? Like I'm just some middle-aged guy who lifts weights for, you know, on the side. I'm like, you should meet my mutant friends. What would you do to their bones? If my bones are the heav hardest bones to cut you've ever seen in all your practice. I mean, like, I mean, I really think <clears throat> we're starting to see it's like one of those pictures where you pan way back and you're like, it's a sailboat. You know what I mean? And you come up <laughs> close and, and like, that's where we're starting to see this disparate data start to aggregate, to make a picture, sort of an emergent idea of a fundamental de-evolution and unloading of the human. And it's so complicated. And then the real question is you're blaming physicians for that. Like who, like, where is the, the, you know, the pointy end of the spear here and where can we, have much earlier interventions. This is the thing that we've got to just, we've got to start overturning tables and being outrageous about it. Right, I mean, by the time we see the patient, when I, we do a ton of genicular nerve blocks, especially for knees, you know, just try and block the sensory nerves and see if they can get relief. Wow. But the question that I always wonder is, you know, how much uh, function are you gonna have after that? Could you do that for, you know, an athlete and have them return to sport without pain? There's like zero research on that because the patient population we're seeing right now there's just not athletes that are doing that. But if things keep going the way you're saying, we're going to start doing these procedures on younger and younger people because they're going to get themselves in a tough spot. So yeah, we definitely need better procedures too, if it's going to be like that. You know, it's really interesting, <clears throat> this conversation about who owns pain. One of the things that, you know, I've been able to sort of rely back on is looking at the sort of the naggy model of disability and the nagging model of disability says disability begins when you can no longer occupy your role in society. You can no longer occupy your role as your job or you're in your family. You couldn't do education recreation that then you're, we're, we're into the tissue disability. The other side of that for me is non-skilled 
certainly you can have skilled intervention, but that pain level stuff, that's common musculoskeletal stuff. That's what I falls into what I call the incident level sort of model. It's we have, we have tissue dysfunction or sensitization of the brain or whatever is going on that the brain is starting to care about this. We're still not at that disability model. And what we've been doing is saying, you know, honestly or dishonestly or no one's wanted to touch it because we thought pain was such a medical problem that we basically ignore it until people are disabled then they go see their physicians <clears throat> now you're trying to untangle this really complex biopsychosocial componentry well tell me about your food and tell me about your sleep and tell me about your movement and i'm like oh by the way you have eight minutes because you're a doctor to make this diagnosis and move on like it's just a type one error in the whole on conversation. So then the physicians like go see a physical therapist. And I'm like, okay, so now they have 30 minutes to see like some handouts and then where are we having these interventions? So, you know, I think one of the things that you're going to have to see is we're going to, as we talk about who owns pain beforehand, because this chronic pain, persistent pain is a big deal, but I'm always brought back to this, this, this idea of what's going on in the brain that is sensitizing us to this, this lack of input, you know, like, I'm like, you know, people aren't barefoot, they're not on the ground, they just don't have sort of this history of, of being okay with movement, and their brains become very sensitized very quickly. And I want to just say, if you're listening to this at all, and this is you, this is not in your head. You're really experiencing pain and it's dis disabling. Like that's very true. But the mechanisms of how we got there are very complex. And I've seen radio frequency ablation change people's lives. You know, like they're like, I'm back. I, I was able to go to work. I was able to, you know, get off morphine and interact with my family. But, you know, those interventions are like, should be so far down the chain. And we need to have this better conversation of, of where do we insert ourselves or where do we start to, to move the tanker in this greater conversation of, of, you know, human function or, and we're not even talking about like high function. We're just talking about like getting through your day and not having your knees, you know, you know, you drive you to opiates and, you know, THC. Right. And I mean, we use a more of a multidisciplinary approach when it comes to a lot of this stuff too, trying to plug patients in with, you know, like nutrition, and stuff while while they're in the office they can come go and see a nutritionist but the thing is things as little as just getting the patients to start moving and getting rid of that apprehension does wonders for their pain I'm, i mean you know this just from a baseline but it's just really hard to convince people you know you got to get out there you got to move you got to get in these positions yeah and it's um we haven't really been done a good job we're simultaneously telling people hey you're fragile take it easy <laughs> and simultaneously like you're gonna be 100 years old you live your gonads but you're at your knees so what's going on <laughs> and uh i think you know we really need to rethink the whole system i mean you know i tell people i'm like look here's what you need to be using your physician for pathology and catastrophe like that you know that is we you guys are the best in the world at that but the system is not set up you know, really we're talking about behavior change and certainly you can be giving people the resources, but those behavior changes and those rethinking about where do we have this interaction in, you know, poor nutrient density foods and lack of sleep. And, you know, we're to the place now when people come and see me who have persistent pain and chronic pain, I make them track their sleep. 
And I'm like, look, I can't even tell what's going on in the signal to noise ratio if you're not sleeping and you report you're sleeping, but I just don't believe you. Don't take it the wrong way. But here, wear this device and prove to me that I'm wrong. And it turns out until we start to take care of some of these baselines, we keep adding such complexity in, you know, lacrosse ball is not going to solve this issue. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, I keep thinking what's so interesting, the physical therapists, you know, um, were a little confused by what we were doing, what I was doing early on. And it's because I really came out of a, a performance tradition and they were like biopsychosocial. And I was like, you mean the same conversations I'm having with every high level organization or group team about, team dynamics and being safe and, and sleeping and decongestion and food and like, and the performance psychology, all of that stuff is the same shit. We need to be having conversations with our 12 and 13 year old girls, you know, like that's, this is the root of making these durable people. And um, I think because we come out of this sort of, I'm going to just say performance model where it's really easy for us to see sort of some of the, the, application of inputs and outputs you know we can like <clears throat> you know if, if i crush amy in a workout which is unlikely just a hypothetical just bear with me here for a second right theoretically if i crush her in a workout i'd be like what's going on you normally crush me and you can be like super stressed didn't sleep drank three pitchers of beer ate two pizzas i'm like oh right it's easy for us to see inputs and outputs there and it's more difficult to say well why is your knee hurt today you know, why does, you know, these, you know, the normal accident theory is that a lot of the things that, you know, pop, also say pop error messages that our brain starts caring about sometimes is so complex in the making that it's difficult to say, to come up with a just so story. You know, no one slid into me in my knee at third base, right? That's not a, I didn't have a clear mechanism of injury. So what is going on? And I think as we start to try to untangle some of the complex behavioral like lifestyle pieces that's the thing i mean you guys are really i'm like oh physiatry that's so cute you're really lifestyle medicine let's be honest <laughs> um sort of yeah okay i'll <laughs> go with that i'll go with that um yeah it's it's kind of i guess for us uh, also on the medical side it's, it's a bit frustrating because we most of the people at least i'll speak for myself most people that i see are not kelly starrett who with a knee problem right they're right. people who often the effort on their part maybe isn't as high as I would want it to be. And that they're looking for like, I want you to fix my problem. And then I want to go, like, I don't want to put a lot of work in. I don't want to talk about my food. I want to eat my cheeseburgers and I just leave me alone. You know, like I just, I just want to get fixed. And it's, and it, so then trying to unpack all this other stuff is difficult wow. on the opposite side of that is, you know, when I, on the, when I do get somebody who's like, okay, you, you, you want to put the work in, you're in pretty good shape to, to just begin with. And, you know, we want to figure out this problem. Then it's like, okay, who in this system do I connect right. them with who right. actually gets it? And it's hard because just the traditional kind of medical model is not catering to those people. And it's like, okay, well, where do we find the resources that the person can, person can afford that, the, you know, that will take advantage of this person's desire to want to help themselves. So it's, it's, it's on both sides. It's difficult. Oh yeah. I, you know, um, if you don't know this, my, you know this, but my father's a physician, um, family practice doctor with Kaiser. Now we're just retired, but out of retirement with COVID, you know, still talking to people on the phone. My grandfather is, was a retired radiologist, but also a flight surgeon. 
so I, I came out of that model a little bit, really seeing that, you know, classic model. And again, I just want people to appreciate, like my wife had breast cancer in 2019. And this is the second time she's had cancer. And I've had, we, my wife's had two emergency C-sections for placenta previa. And we had a baby who, basically Juliet's on her like seventh life, right? And uh, forget the stuff she did as a whitewater athlete being attacked by hippos, forget all that. Just, you know, medicine, Western medicine, we'll put in quotation marks because of that sort of loaded, but traditional medicine is the reason my family is still alive. I would have buried two wives, had two dead babies. Right? And, you know, I mean, those are just from the birth. So at some point I'm like, Hey, we don't need to cast this aspersion on all of this, but the question remains, where do we begin to have this intervention? And frankly, who are the stakeholders? Because you know, what I appreciated about my surgeon who was head of orthopedics ECSF, he knew exactly who I was and what was going on. And he was like, yep, see me in seven weeks. And he's like, looks good. See you in two years. You know, I mean, like he was like, you know, <laughs> you're, you're nailing it. And normally I have to push people harder. And, you know, so what I appreciated was that he was like, good, I, I cannot look at you and I can focus on the people who really need my attention. But conversely, what I thought was interesting about this experience. And again, I think I had a fantastic surgeon, fantastic, you know, the care was excellent, but there were some, some mismatches there. One was I was on opiates for two days and then off opiates and no one, the follow-up through the app kept asking me how many, you know, Vicodin do you have left? How many Oxycontin have you used? And I'm like, none. And they're like, no, 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 that's not an answer. We accept like, how many of you use? I like none. And they're like, how many are left in the bottle? I'm like 100%. And I went back and forth in this algorithm because people couldn't believe that I had, you know, was able to through some other ways to, to manage this pain. The other thing that happened, I think was really interesting was there was no additional capacity for my physician to be interested in my outcome because of the workload given to the physician. And so what ends up happening is you've seen this in a class. If you're a coach or you've ever been in a group class, you're like, that person is killing it. They're good enough. I'm going to go over and high five them. And then I need to really focus on these people who are the top of my problem list for movement, right? Dysfunction or unskilledness, or I need to watch those people come over here, high five. Because the system isn't set up to him to say, well, tell me about how you manage congestion. And, well, I wonder if there's an application for this in my own practice. There's, the ball's going too fast. And so if people are coming in with good outcomes, I want them to appreciate that if you bring that to your physician, it's going to be tricky for your physician for her to have enough space to be really interested in your story in that original setting. The, the setting, you know, Juliet had bad juvenile rheumatoid arthritis as a kid, my wife. Um, they put her on prednisone for like two years as a child, right? And pretty much just destroyed her articular surfaces. She's got a couple digits that are stuck bent and her elbow doesn't extend all the way. And uh, so when she points, she points kind of at an angle, right? With double fingers. And I'm like, who are you pointing at? And then she gets all mad at me because she's pointing at me, but she's really pointing off to the side. And so she's had, you know, she, her hips, she was dysplastic as a kid, plus all this. So she had two total hip replacements. And by the time she went in for her one-year follow-up with her physician, who was also a fantastic physician, he was like, so tell me what, you've, what your last year list looked like. And she was like, 
did a Spartan half, you know, 13, I did six outrigger races. I won a world championship and and whitewater paddling again. I, I, you know, back to my full crop. And he was just like, what, you know, and he became a member of our gym. And that was the way we were able to initiate a real conversation with him was to sort of have this, this intermediate experience, which wasn't, someone is on fire in emergency. We need to put them on. Like having a conversation about someone's nutrition in the ER is sort of not the greatest place to have that conversation at that moment, right? It's important, but we need to triage some things. So what I want people to appreciate is we, if we're going to, again, I think continue to improve the system and improve our outcomes, we have to think differently about how we're using our physicians, our relationship with our physicians and our rehab or our traditional physical therapy, and then go to the places where people are receiving their health information. So right now, Juliet and everyone probably knows or doesn't know, but Juliet and I have a nonprofit called Stand Up Kids, which has transitioned kids out of traditional sitting sedentary desks to more dynamic classrooms where they have agency to fidget. The desks have a fidget bar. They can stand, they can pivot, they can perch, they can sit on the ground. And we're engaged with our, our daughters, for example, went to the first all standing elementary school in the world, not a chair around. We had 450 kids. We're in year eight of this experiment. No one died. It's really weird. Kids, kids did better on testing. Of course, there were fewer disciplinary options. Um, but right now we're engaged with some long-term research with UCSF and Cal Berkeley. And it was a little trickier in the pandemic, but some of the papers that will come out of it where the kids had in these fifth graders had very little baseline information about their own health. They didn't have understanding of what was a good food choice, how much they should sleep, how to self-soothe. So I'm like, okay, in the fifth grade, if kids don't begin to understand how to take and care and feed themselves, let's just extrapolate that up a decade and then add another decade. And the aggregation of all of that lack of health information, basic environmental information starts to really make it difficult for us to back out of that complex, you know, multifocal behavior change that we're going to be required. So, you know, Julian and I are like, okay, here's how we're going to untangle this. We're going to start in elementary school. And that is the place where we're going to start to get kids interested in walking more and tracking more and paying attention to, you know, being able to cook and self-soothe and, and, and movement quality. And I'm like, if teachers are sophisticated enough to teach my children how to read and do math, they can teach them to air squat. They can teach them to balance. They can teach them handstands up on walls, right? So I think we have to really reconceptualize. And to your point, which was a really good one, you know, we're talking about agency. We're talking about access, right? And that the resources that people have are not equal, but we educate every kid in America, right? At a federal dollar level, state dollar level, that's the place where we're going to have to make these radical changes. So by the time someone comes to see their physician, we, the physician doesn't have to have a thousand remedial conversations to actually be able to help the person with their skill set, which is, I think, what we're currently doing. What, I mean, what is your what are your thoughts about getting getting that message out? So, I mean, something like nutrition guidelines, right? We're so, we're so broken or still broken, you know, for so long, the ones that were sort of officially being given out by the government, right? So like, 
and if teachers have to stick to that as, as the standard or doctors have to stick to that as the standard, it's really hard to undo that when that's the message that's kind of coming from above. Well, you know, what's so interesting is I'll defer, you know, I'm just a physical therapist and, but I will say that I, as a coach, I had to become interested in nutrition around performance. Right. And I feel like if you're a healthcare provider and you can't speak to some basic fundamentals about macronutrients and micronutrients, right. There's a hole in your, right. We're just pretending like the thing that we all do every single day isn't as important. Right. And, you know, eating. So what I'll say is, you know, um, E.C. Sinkowski, our mutual friend, um, who has the 800 gram challenge, um, you know, all John Brard is a good friend of mine. All of our beh behavioral friends, our nutrition friends are experts in behavior change. And one of the things that I love that E.C. has done so well is that she's been additive to people's diets. And so instead of saying, don't eat that, right, because changing people's diets is maybe the most, I mean, we can change their religion, easier. We can change their political affiliation, maybe easier than we can change how they fuel and how they self-soothe with food, you know, and just to everyone is clear, you know, during, after my, I had my knee replaced on the 20th of October. And basically I was like, until January 1st, I'm going to eat a sweet roll every day. So I have, there's a killer cinnamon roll from my local market and I ate one a day until January. And of course it's, it caused me to be inflamed and I'm sure it wasn't great. But as, as a total caloric piece of my thing, I was like, this is what I call self-soothing. This is how I'm reaching for a drug to make me feel good when I feel sad about my knee, right? And so I just want to be, appreciate that I'm not some monk. <clears throat> but one of the things that EC said recently was, you know, if we actually went and prescribed and worked by the guidelines and actually ate fruits and vegetables and actually ate like whole grains, not processed foods, if we actually got and just stuck to some of those baselines. Of course, industrial seed oils are terrible and should be gone, et cetera. Not everyone needs to have dairy, right? We're not all Northern European ancestry. There's a whole lot of things that don't make sense there. But man, what we see when we actually get into the weeds is a lot of processed nu nutrient-dense foods. In fact, what I've seen recently is that some of the research our nutrition friends put out is that we're actually eating less sugar now than we did 10 years ago. We're actually getting, people are trending in the right direction, but what's the deal? If we're eating less sugar and we've been putting sugar on the, you know, on the, the scapegoat pile, number one, well, it's all of these really nutrient dense, not nutrient dense, but calorically dense foods that are killing us, right? It's so easy. I mean, I'm like, I'm like, eat a cup of rice and, you know, a steak and tell me you're full and you're not full and then eat, you know, a bag of cookies and some chips. And I guarantee you, you're going to be starving still and still need to eat those things. So I think to your point, we can still work within some of these guidelines, right? But we still have to be looking at calories in, right? Baseline. And are you exercising? What I mean by exercise, wrong word, are you moving your body during the day? So this non-exercise activity thermogenesis, this neat kind of background, you know, we have come to believe when we're trying to change body composition for our, some of our family and friends, or we're trying to decongest or load again, or we're trying to untangle persistent pain and chronic pain, we go for walking as our first intervention because everyone can walk. 
even if you're in chronic savage pain, you can walk one minute at a time and lay down and walk one minute and lay down. You can keep doing one minute walks around your kitchen, right? It's possible to scale this thing up and scale it down. But if we get people sleeping, exercising a little bit more through walking, again, not exercise, creating what we're calling a base camp of behaviors, then all of a sudden, I think some of these conversations become a little bit a little bit less important, right? Like, like ripping out the frappuccino out of someone's diet can happen after we're doing several other things that don't cost anything, right? But right now, you know, the research is that we're not sleeping. We're not sleeping as much as we report we're sleeping. And what I have defaulted to is from another physician friend. I, you probably know Kirk Parsley, Doc Parsley. He was, I met him, he was a physician with Naval Special Warfare who started to kind of be super fed up with the system. We were putting testosterone pellets in the butts of our, you know, Navy guys. Their testosterone is 200, they deploy. Meanwhile, they're sleeping four hours a night, chewing, drinking five-hour energy. Like, you know what I mean? They were like, well, hey, he's just like, hey, this is just a big Band-Aid on top of this big problem, which is sleep readiness. So his guideline, which I've sort of adopted as my own, is saying seven hours is your minimum threshold for survival. So if you want to be a surviving animal, that's seven hours. And let's appreciate you're going to have work come up. You're going to have a sick kid. You're going to get on a red eye. There'll be an emergency. Sometimes you're going to be super stressed. Don't panic. But the goal is to get back to that baseline and appreciate we're going to draw a line in the sand. If you have a complex pain problem, you have an injury or re recovering from a surgery or trying to change your body composition, let's go ahead and upregulate or at least get you up to the seven level, right? If you are trying to change those things meaningfully, we need you in bed for eight hours, which I think is actually very reasonable. Now, the key here is that one of the things we've learned from all the tracking is that we see that you may have upwards of half hour or an hour of sleep disturbance every night so your seven hours of sleep means you are in bed for eight hours to get seven hours of sleep. If you are trying to get eight hours of sleep, you need to be in bed for nine hours. So I'm as a behavior change, I'm like, hey, look, just get into bed a half hour earlier. Just do that. Because if you just fell asleep a half hour earlier in two weeks, you've slept an additional emergency night's sleep. That's a whole seven hours that you've pulled out every two weeks. And that aggregates into real change in the organism. But what we haven't said is, hey, this sleep, is so crucial to your health and readiness and sensitivity and robustness of your system. And until we really get into that, like I would love to, in your physiatry clinic to like, I'll buy a hundred sleep trackers or get a hundred donated. And anyone comes in with chronic persistent pain, we'll just track their sleep. And we know that injury rates skyrocket when kids don't sleep, right? We just know like it's like one under seven hours of sleep and it's like one and a half times you know, greater injury risk. I just saw that infographic on YLM. And so some of this, I think, is you guys are experts in the sophisticated nano medicine, right? Where you can apply needles and do things and nerve blocks. And yet people haven't upheld their end of the bargain. And I assume that they have because they've never been informed or been empowered or given the choice or told that it was important. Everyone comes out of a tradition, but you, where do you learn to sleep? Your parents, where, how did they cope? Well, they kept the TV on at night, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So until we begin to say, Hey, look, 
where are people getting their health information? It's not just diet and exercise because that clearly has, we've been beating that message for a minute. I mean, is the core strong enough? We've been bracing the core for a decade. Seems to me that our cores are all strong enough. Why do we have back pain still? So those are the things that I've become hyper interested in. And when I had knee surgery, they were non-negotiables for me. I had to do those things in order for me to sort of have the outcome or to heal at the rate of a human being. Now, did I see, have you been using a weighted blanket and then the cooling pad as well? Yes. Yes. I love that you saw that. So I don't use the weighted blanket. My wife sleeps under a chilled weighted blanket, but I sleep on a device called a chili pad, which circulates cold water under my sheet all night long. So what I was always infamously a brutally hot sleeper and, and people are like nodding their heads like, oh yeah, that's me. That's me. <laughs> and I would wake up in the night because I was so hot and multiple times have a fan on. But ever since I got this chili pad, my sleep quality went through the roof. And now if you're one of my athletes, I have a ton of Olympians this year, 100% of them sleep on the chili mats because I'm like, look, for me, one of the reasons that I love it so much and for all of the women who are perimenopausal, menopausal, it's a game changer for thermoregulation but it's a structural behavior change. It's one less thing. I don't have to have willpower. I don't have to, I have to turn it on before I go to bed, right? That is not like, I'm now gonna get on the ground and engage in a complex behavior to, you know, to negate these other complex behaviors. Like I, my room is dark because I sleep with an eye mask. I get into my chili pad because it's ice cold and I don't have to do anything. Those things are right there. So more and more, I'm like, how do we configure the environment so that we're free to pe for people to mess around and not have to obsess about diet and nutrition 24 hours a day, the way we all obsess about it. I mean, what other, what other things have you done uh, as far as your recovery from surgery that, you know, I'm sure that were not suggested to you at the doctor's office. I know you've been like using the airdyne and stuff like that. So like what, what things would you say are, have been essential to your recovery? Well, when, uh, when people are, are coming back from surgery, I want them to start with the fundamental idea that you either heal at the rate that a human can heal or you heal slower than that. So if you've ever run into someone who's like, I'm a fast healer, really what they're saying is I healed the same rate as every other human being does, comma, or slower, right? And so when people seem like they're outliers, they're not outliers. They are just healing at the rates that humans do. It takes 12 weeks for implants to grow in. That's how long bones take to heal, really heal up, 12 weeks. A bad ankle sprain, I think we usually say four to six weeks. The thing is, right, tendons, eight to 10 weeks. The thing is, we have confused or conflated pain with healing times because people in our universe will be pain-free very early. So they'll, they'll have no pain, but they are not out of the woods. What we've been using is pain and swelling to, as a rate limiter to people's healing, in my experience of the people I've worked with. And so one of the things that has been a transformational aspect, something I've been hammering on for almost a decade, but have doubled down since my own experience is that I have access to something called an NMES, which is a neuromuscular e-stem device. So it basically puts a little current through my tissue 
right? So imagine like a little mini shock that gets my muscle to contract. And this is not a TENS unit trying to block pain. This isn't a neuromuscular Russian stem device to pick up motor units. This is designed to be able to be worn for 24 hours a day. So my benchmark post-surgery is that you need to decongest through this muscle contraction to dump the lymphatics. 20 out of 24 hours a day is my benchmark guideline. If you want an A+, plus, you get 21 hours a day. If you want a C, you get 19 hours a day. And the idea here is especially after trauma. And what I want people to appreciate is that my surgery is controlled trauma. Like I have the best trauma you can have where someone is very aware of the fascial lines and cutting the minimal and Right, this isn't like a car that's taking me out or a gunshot wound, which is just super orders of magnitude more gnarly. But what we found out was we know that one of the things that happens is the swelling afterwards is such a large driver of pain sensitization. The brain is whatever the mechanisms are, swelling can drive a lot of interpretation of the brain as pain. And what our experience clinically has been that when we get people to manage their congestion, because post-surgical trauma, the swelling that happens as a natural healing reaction to the, to the surgery overwhelms your body's sewage system. And your sewage system is your lymphatic system. So your lymphatics, as everyone knows or doesn't know, for me, is like, almost more important than your circulatory system. We can't say it's more important. There, you, you still need blood to that, that tissue, but there's enough particulate, there's enough protein, there's enough sort of back end of, of normal processes that don't go out through your traditional circulatory system, your art, veins, artery, and capillaries, they go out through your lymphatic system. So you know, that's how your body's bringing in its, its, you know, immune responses through your lymphatic system, right? If you've ever been sick and had a swollen, you know, groin lymph node, or armpit lymph node, or neck lymph node, that's what your doctors are checking for, is they're looking for these lymph nodes as signs of, of infection. And of course, that's oversimplification. A sign of is an immune response. So what's interesting is that when I was able to pump and I woke up in my surgery in the recovery and started flexing my quadriceps, I was like, I'm going to keep this connection. I was super numb. I'd had a spinal, kept the connection, but I started engaging on getting my brain to start moving my muscles. And I started to decongest just with my, my movement, just flexing my quad a little bit. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sutured up. There, I mean, there's not a lot of flexion going on. And the nurse was like, you need to stop doing that. And I was like, you need to stop telling me to stop doing that. Right. <laughs> and she's like, like, I started to bleed out my incisions a little bit. She's like, like this guy here won't quit flexing his leg and it's bleeding. And I was like, yes, ma'am, that's called decongestion. So, and so I go up, you know, I'm only in recovery for like 30 minutes or less. They take me upstairs and my Mark pro or my H wave, I use H wave up there, which is this, uh, this device. I apply the H wave immediately. I'm within an hour of surgery and I'm already getting muscle contraction in my quads which are helping to relieve that swelling that's happening. The, the sewage is starting to back up. I then put hot compresses on my groin and on my belly, right? And the groin right there where on the inside of your groin is where the junction of all your lymphatics leave your leg and go into your trunk. And I'm doing like yoga, hot breathing, like ha, 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 
trying to get my pump this crap out of my body. Right. I, I I'm definitely in like super nerve block. I've got, you know, my pe there's a big tube down my penis. Like I'm not my best self, but here's what I can control in this moment. And so I pumped 20 out of 24 hours, which meant because I was able to manage my congestion, I wasn't as limited or fearful of pain. Why? Because my muscles are moving the whole time. So my brain is like, look at all this movement that's happening in the system, movement without motion. There's not a lot of flexion happening in a swollen knee. That's not, I'm not going to do that. I, I couldn't even get to 90 degrees because I was going to tear my sutures. So, but being able to move this around meant I didn't have pitting edema. I didn't have secondary sort of inflammatory, response, inflammatory responses from the swelling that was in there. I didn't use ice once in my so post-surgical response. Because remember, ice is helping people manage pain, but not necessarily get ahead of some of the pain generators, which is swelling and, and this lack of movement. So from day one, for hour one, I'm starting to think critically about how do I manage swelling in this system? And what's really interesting is that I had a, uh, there was a great resident there and they used a wound vac on me. And they're like, we love the wound vac because it, it, you know, a little negative pressure unloads the sutures a little bit. And I was like, great. So when this wound vac is, is dry, bone dry in two days, what's the plan? He's like, no, you're going to leave this on for two weeks. And I was like, so when this bone, this wound vac is dry in two days, what's the plan? And he was like, you don't understand. I was like, you don't understand, sir, because I'm not keeping this thing on my body if it's not doing anything. And of course, in two days, it was bone dry. And I got to brought my nurse friend over and we covered my incisions and did all the right things. But in his mind, that swelling was going to continue to back up and need to be expressed through the skin out of a vacuum into a tube that collected the, the blood, right? Co collected the serosanguinous exudate. I think that was the technical term that you, would, you guys would use, you doctors. And, yes, yes. You know, and so uh, all the juice that came out of my knee, that, that's how it works. And um, so being able to one, have this mechanism to decongest meant that I probably wasn't getting the same pain response that other people were getting because the knee was so swollen. And I will tell you that even staying on that, because I was able to use pump all night long, which is really for me, one of the hidden windows of recovery time that we don't really get to tap into because a lot of people don't sleep well because they're in so much pain or they're not getting movement, which is masking some of the pain signaling, Plus, they're not able to contract the musculature to decongest. The leg just sits there and swells and swells. And I can't imagine the swelling in this thing and how I would deal with that. And what I would have done if I didn't have an alternative, I would have been like, hand me that Oxycontin. Hand it to me again. Like, give me the THC and the Oxycontin. Like, this has to stop because a Wolverine is gnawing at my leg. So with that idea putting a warm blanket on squeezing doing as much movement as i can trying to just decongest i had a really different outcome my knee was not swollen and effused when i went in for my two-week follow-up it just didn't now what i'll say is interesting is that this particular device i use also has a high frequency setting so I can put a pad on either side of the joint and run a little high frequency energy in there, which actually for 45 minutes, I can completely numb the joint. And it's actually FDA cleared for pain relief, on-demand pain relief. 
And so if I felt like I was getting behind because I did a little too much or, you know, whatever, I was just up too much. Like I had to close my gym during the pandemic and I did 10,000 farmer's walks with a million plates trying to get the shit out of my gym. My knee would get very swollen and sometimes I'd get behind, but being able to have in my back of my mind, I have a drug-free on-demand pain relief really made a big difference because I could reach for it, continue to pump. And I pumped and pumped and pumped. And so what ends up happening then is, my desire to move is a little higher at week two, able to move a little bit more and load at week four, able to you know, drive myself to, the, to my follow-up at week two because I have enough flexion and I didn't lose any quad control. And what it made me think is, wow, how much have we messed up from the rehabilitative side, the post-surgical side? My physician has done her job. Like he, he killed it on his side. The care is there, the wound care. Now it's someone else needs to pick up the ball a little bit and step in and say, okay, here's how we're going to help you manage this because the physician has done her job or done his. And then what I'll tell you is interesting is here I am somewhere between five and six months. I have unrestricted access. I can ride my bike clipped in for four hours. I ski like I'm a 17 year old maniac. I deadlifted 570. I power clean hundred kilos. Like I can run. I, like people are like, I don't understand. I'm like, well, what's happening is that I've been loading the tissue systematically from day one. It, the loading at day one looked very low, but what's interesting is I'm still using the same devices because it's going to take a year for the connective tissue to sort of resort itself out. It's gonna take a year to rebuild all the associated vascular networks. And so what ends up happening now is I still have some rebound and swelling after loading it. I cross country skied for three hours today, just FYI, right? And then I did a CrossFit workout and my knee is gonna be a little juicy tonight. It's gonna to be a little, little full, right? And so I'm going to get on my machine and pump it back and sort of manage that during my sleep hours. So that really made me think, as a physical therapist, how many people I have failed by not hammering this one piece more by saying, wow, I really need you to manage this aspect of your post-surgical like, you know, treatment. And this is all you and has nothing to do with the success of your physician. Because then all of a sudden, again, the thing I'm describing is math, not science, right? The math is, is proven and the math is there. And so it really it focused me because I was able to get on the bike earlier and I was able to start loading faster. And, you know, all of that begets earlier return to care. The other model is wait until the fire goes out until it's old and cold, and then try to dig yourself out of the, of the blizzard. And you can do that. And I think that's traditionally what we've done. But as you guys know, going in and doing manipulations and people under anesthesia, because the, you know, the scarring or the, the stiffness that results man, I tell you that I really feel like I got my life back really fast just because I managed the physiology, not because I was an expert in rehabilitative medicine. Because to be honest, you know, only thing I really had to wait around for was my, the, the suture, the, the incision in my joint capsule and for the bones to heal. That's really it. That's what I've been waiting around for everything else was on me because I didn't have to manage tendons. I don't have an ACL. I don't have a PCL. I don't have a meniscus anymore. Like I'm free to beat the crap out of my knee. So very, very interesting in terms of me thinking, am I getting enough protein? Am I drinking enough water? Am I managing my sleeping? Right. Et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, that's, that's how I think I can be a better 
ally to all the physicians I work with on my side, which gives me a little bit more leeway in how I talk to people in the amount of time I talk to people in my reach, I can have patients be better set up to actually receive the full incredible bounty and gift that is medicine with the right physician. All right, so that's the end of part one. Join us for part two, which will be posted soon.